Psalm 131. My heart is not proud, O Lord. My eyes are not haughty. I do not concern myself with great matters or things too wonderful for me. But I have stilled and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, put your hope in the Lord both now and forevermore. Well, that's a short psalm. How is a preacher supposed to uh, get a whole sermon out of that? Well, don't worry. (laughs) We'll find a way. Not only is it a short psalm, it's a psalm without any discernible context. Uh, But what I mean, there's no clear circumstances that gave rise to the psalm. It's not like some psalms where there seems to be some background situation that you can surmise uh, you know, for instance, when we started studying the Psalms of Ascent, we started at Psalm 120, and the background situation there was that the psalmist, uh, as he says, was dwelling in the tents of the wicked. Uh, it, it was a psalm that, that came out of an experience of being a person who loves God, living among a people who don't love God. And what's, what's that like? Or, or the next psalm after that, Psalm 121, which is a very famous psalm known as the Traveler's Psalm. And it's about a person on a journey to Jerusalem and So the context there is, well, the person's on a journey, and we can say, okay, this is a psalm when you're on the journey, whether a literal journey, like we might take this summer on vacation, or or the journey of faith to to heaven. So we got the context. Or if you were here last Sunday, we studied Psalm 130. You know, what was the context for those of you who were here? It was a person who had come to grips with their sin, and they were struck with the fact that they were a sinful person, and it was weighing on them, and so they were wrestling with their guilt and, and how, how you do that. But you come to Psalm 131, and there's no, there's no context. We're not really sure what was going on. We're not sure what the external situation was. The person's just talking about their heart. Their heart is not this. Their heart is like that. There isn't any kind of um, uh, surrounding situation that informs this text. But maybe that's exactly the point of Psalm 131. That Psalm 131 is is not so much about a specific life situation in which you may or may not find yourself, but Psalm 131 is more an exploration of the heart. It's more uh, a sort of a turn inward rather than a view outward. And it's explained to us what it's like to have a heart and a soul that is hoping, as it says in verse 3, hoping in the Lord. Um, that, that this psalm is, is in some ways a description of the inner life of a person who's trusting God or hoping in God or has their faith in God. You know, what does that look like? What does it feel like? What goes on inside the head of a person who is, who is feeling this? I would, if, I, if I had to say, what is Psalm 131 about? I think it's a description, an experiential description of having faith. And even though the word faith doesn't appear in this psalm, I think that's what this whole psalm is about. It, it's a description of what faith feels like. It's like in the movies, um, you know, where, where they do a voiceover. There'll be someone in the car in the movie and they're driving and there's someone sitting next to them. And then you hear... The, the, the character who's driving, you hear his voice. He's not saying anything, you just hear his voice. And you go, oh, those are his thoughts. 
That's his inner monologue, right? And, and I feel like Psalm 131, we're hearing the inner monologue, the voiceover of a person who, whatever the situation may be, a person who is trusting in the Lord, a person who has faith, who's hoping in God. It seems to me that's what this psalm is. And when you th- think about it that way, suddenly this becomes a very helpful psalm because having faith is so central to the Christian life. I mean, th- that's, that's our base response to everything. We, no matter what happens to us in life, we start with, okay, faith in God. This is the basic thing. Preachers tell you all the time. I mean, you've probably heard it. You, you've heard it from me and hopefully most Sundays, and you'll hear it other Sundays too. The preachers say, look, if you want to be saved, you need to put your faith in Jesus. And you go, okay, what does that mean? <laughs> how, how do I know if my faith is in Jesus? What does that sound like in my head? What does that feel like in my heart when I have faith? And this is a unique psalm that takes us into those places to, to again, hear and see and feel faith inside the soul. Or maybe you're going through a tough time and your friend says, hey, I'm going to pray for you, and I'm going to pray that you're really going to be able to trust God. And you say, thank you, but how do I know if I'm trusting God? Because I'm still going through a tough time. What, what does trusting God seem like in the soul? And so Psalm 131 is, is very reflective, and it, it's describing that inner condition. So when you look at it that way, Psalm 131, to me at least, just kind of opens up, and, and we see it. Verse 1 of Psalm 31, 131 is the negative. When you have faith, you're not like this. So here's, here's what you're not like when you have faith. But when you have faith, verse 2, you are like this. So there's a negative my, my heart is not like this. And there's a positive, verse 2, this is what my soul is like. And then verse 3 is, is the psalmist uh, speaking to uh, the, the people of faith and really speaking to us as the reader, saying, you should have the same attitude in your own heart. You should also hope in the Lord like I've just described in verses 1 and 2. So that's the flow of, of the thing. So it's simple, and yet I think it's helpful and profound. So let's just look at the negative and the positive. Let's start at verse 1. What's it like to have faith? Well, it's, it means that you're not arrogant. Look at verse 1. He says, My heart is not proud, O Lord. My eyes are not haughty. So to have faith, when you're trusting in God, one of the characteristics of that is you won't be arrogant, which makes sense. Because if I'm depending on God, then I'm not depending on myself. If I'm saying in my soul that song we all just sang, which is beautiful, by the way, I, I need thee. If I'm singing, I need thee, then I'm, and, and I'm trusting in God, that that's sort of the song of faith, I need thee every hour, Lord. If that's true, then I'm also saying, I, I'm deficient. I don't have what it takes. I need the Lord, which is a humbling thing to say. Um, so even if you're gifted, smart, well-educated, wealthy, powerful, um, clever, talented, successful, even if you are a very self-assured person, you can still live by faith. You can still say, Lord, okay, I have all these gifts, abilities, whatever, but they're from you and I need you. I am not puffed up. I don't think that these abilities and gifts and talents or whatever it is you rely on, I, I don't think this is the answer These are just tools given to me by you, but you, Lord, are the one 
in whom I trust. That's a position of humility and dependence before God. And so that's what faith feels like. It's not proud. It's not arrogant, which I really find interesting because my guess is that's not how we initially think of faith as something akin to humility. Like, like if I were to do a, a word association game with you, and I were to say, I'm going to say a word, and I want you to think of the opposite word or an antonym to what I'm going to say. And I said, the word is faith. You know, you might say, okay, opposite word, unbelief, right? Which is true. That, that is true. Um, faith is, I believe something. I believe uh, the proposition that there is a God. And, and the opposite would be unbelief. I don't believe that there is a God. I don't believe that proposition. I don't believe that's true. And, and that is a part of faith. Having faith, obviously, you have to believe. You know, you can't really depend upon God if you don't believe God is real. So you have to believe there is a God. But what I want you to see is that biblical faith is more than just believing a proposition to be true. It's trusting and depending on God, not just saying, yeah, yeah, there's got to be a God out there somewhere. This all had to come from somewhere. Clearly, there's a God. Okay. But do you trust that God? You know, it's, as this illustration has been used a million times by preachers, but, you know, it's the difference between believing the parachute will open and putting the parachute on and jumping out of the plane. And biblical faith is not only believing that parachutes work and that they're real, biblical faith is strapping it on and jumping out of the plane. It's trusting your life to something. Um, and now, why, am, why is this important? I think it's important because, and this is kind of my experience, maybe this isn't true, maybe you've had different experiences. My experience is talking to people who live where we live is that a lot of people have faith in the sense that they will affirm there is a God or a higher power or something. But when it comes to how they live their lives and how they make their decisions and where their hope is and what bases their morality and their life choices, they're not trusting in God. They'll say, there is a God, but functionally, they don't live that way. And I fall into that trap too, where I can believe with my mind there's a God, but I don't live that way. But here's the thing that's scary, is that we think, well, therefore, I must have faith. I must be a Christian because I believe there's a God. No, biblical faith is not just affirming the factoid of the existence of a greater being. It is trusting your life. And to do that requires humility. Because it means I have to say, even with whatever gifts, talents, abilities, intelligence, education I have, I need, I need God's help. And so it's, it's a humbling place to be. So that's why the person who's in a, a posture of faith is not proud. The eyes are not haughty. They recognize that we need the Lord and that any good thing that does happen is from Him. Just like we read about in James, right, that Pete read for us. You know, don't say, this next year I'm going to do this, that, and the other thing. Say, if the Lord wills, I'll do this, that, and the other thing. There's that, that note of humility that characterizes a person of true faith. Look at the note of humility in the next part of verse 1. He says, I do not concern myself with great matters or things too wonderful for me. There's that humility again. Now, what does that mean, I do not concern myself with great matters or things too wonderful for me? I mean, we've got to dig into that phrase. Maybe you're, you read that and you think, oh, yeah, I get it. Uh, when I first read that, I didn't get it. 
And that, that phrase, maybe it's just my own issues, that phrase hung me up a little bit. I was like, what does that mean? Because when I first read it, I, I was wondering, is this verse saying that if you're going to have faith, if you're going to trust God and depend upon God, that you can't ask tough questions? Turn off your brain. Don't think. Just believe. Right? That, that if you're going to be a Christian, you know, check your brain at the door of the church and just walk in and do as you're told. Right? Don't, don't ask questions. Don't concern yourself with great matters. Don't, don't look into things that are too wonderful for you. Is, is having faith the opposite of having a brain? Is, is having faith the opposite of using your intellect and asking questions and probing and pushing and being open-minded? Is it, is it sort of one or the other, right? Is it is to, to have faith is just to believe it no matter what? Like, uh, you know, I, I was thinking of George Orwell's book, 1984, and, and the lead character there, he gets brainwashed by the totalitarian state. And in the last scene of that novel, he's sitting in a little coffee shop and he's writing on a piece of paper, two plus two equals five, because that's what the state told him. And he finally was brainwashed. He was like, yes. He's just happily, you know, like a fool, writing two plus two equals five. Is, is that what it means? Is that what this psalm is saying? Uh, the other uh, night, a couple weeks ago now, uh, my, my 11-year-old daughter was with me. We're out to dinner with our family, and we're eating together. Middle of dinner, totally random, my 11-year-old daughter gets up from her seat. She walks down to my end of the table. She stands right next to me, and she says, Dad, she said, how do we know God is real? You know, I'm like, can I finish the steak? Go ask your mom. I don't know. I know God's real. Have you tasted this steak? Wow. That's, that's how kids roll. They just drop things on you. Like, wow. So should I have said to my daughter in that minute, my dear, don't concern yourself with great matters. Don't think about things too wonderful for you. Just dad says there is, so there is a God. You know, is, is that what this psalm is saying? Is it, is it saying that if you're a humble person of faith, you, you can't wrestle with things or ask questions or probe or use your brain in some way? Well, I, I suspect you could tell by the way I'm framing the question that I don't think that's the case. I, I don't think that's what this psalm is saying. I think what this psalm is talking about instead is is again humility. That when you have faith, you're humble, and you recognize specifically that there is a limit to what the human reason can do. It's recognizing that our minds are not potentially omniscient. That there are boundaries to what we can know and discern with our mind. Or to put it this way, here's another way to put it. I don't think that this psalm is saying that faith is opposed to reason, but I do think this psalm was saying, we might say in our modern terms, that faith is opposed to rationalism. You know what rationalism is? It's, it's, the, it's a religion. Rationalism is a religion that believes by faith that the human mind can comprehend anything if you just give it enough facts. Just give me enough information. I can figure it out. It's up to my mind, and I can solve it. And, there's, and rationalism, then, is a form of pride. It's arrogance. It's sin. Not reason, but rationalism. Um, it's, uh, you know, it's the mind that says, all right, if there's a God, God, if you're up there, prove it. Prove it. So now I'm the judge and jury. God is the defendant. And God has to prove the case of his existence. 
And if God doesn't prove the case of existence, then, well, I'm not going to believe in him. Okay, God, give me some more information. Well, that's some interesting proof, but I've decided that's not enough proof. So, therefore, you don't exist. Poof, you know, and, and God suddenly disappears. Oh, you're right. Oh, I, did, I, I guess you, I don't exist. Oh, you've proved it. So, I think it's that mentality of putting us in the position of judge and jury with God and God having to answer our demands for more information. Like, like the Freedom of Information Act applies to God or something. And, and we can request data, and he has to give it to us because he's under that rule. It's, it's instead this, this humble attitude that says, look, I can use my mind. I can, I can even question. I, I don't think it's wrong to question. But I need to recognize somewhere in my soul that there is a limit to what human beings can know and figure out and do. And so there's a humility in that, things that are too wonderful for me to know. Um, I, I think a great example of this and maybe a story that kind of summarizes and pulls together all these strands that we're talking about in verse 1 is the story of Job in the Old Testament. I love the story of Job. You guys, you've probably read Job, long book, Ancient, very ancient Hebrew poetry. And so it's hard to read in a, as a modern English speaker because it's just, it's a very different kind of poetry. It's very ancient. But it's a great story. It's a classic story. You guys know the story of Job. I'm going to give you the Sparks Notes version of Job. All right. So, so here, here's Job. Uh, Job, most godly man on the face of the earth, loves God, honors God. The Bible says he's blameless. It's a description of his exalted uh, faithfulness to God. And then Job is tested. Uh, God allows tests to come into Job's life, terrible tests. He loses his whole family, all his kids. He loses all his money, totally flat broke. And then he's afflicted with this terrible disease. We don't even know what it was. He's covered with sores. He's miserable. He's in agony all day long. So it's a book. It's a story of extremes. The, the greatest, most holy man going through the worst possible suffering. That's the setup for the book of Job. And so Job is exploring the question, why do God's people suffer? Why do the righteous suffer? And you know how the story goes. Job has these three buddies. And they're also wise, smart, godly men. And they come to explain it to Job. They look at him and they say, you know, Job, we know why you're suffering. There's only one explanation. You clearly have done something really bad. And God is punishing you. Because nobody would go through the bad stuff you're going through unless God was really zapping him for what he had done wrong. So look, hey, we're on your side. We love you, man. We're here for you. Just confess your sin, Job. Tell us what the secret thing is you're hiding, and you'll be cool. And Job says, guys, I know what you're saying, but in my case, I really didn't do anything wrong. And they're like, no, no, dude, it's okay. But God knows, and so it's just, we're just us here, you know, just confess it. We won't tell anyone. Just confess it. You know? It's not actually what the Hebrew says, but you know, th- this is the idea. This is the Sparks notes. And so it goes around and around. Them saying, we know you've sinned. Job saying, look, I didn't sin. Yes, you did. I really didn't. I'm not being punished for sin. This doesn't make any sense. So that's one conversation in Job, and that takes up a lot of chapters, this kind of iterative cycle, uh, ancient Hebrew poetry, pretty cool. But then there's another conversation happening in Job, and it's a vertical conversation, and this is where Job gets in trouble, is when Job looks to the Lord, and he goes beyond asking questions. He goes beyond just crying out for mercy, and Job starts saying to God, I demand that you explain this to me. If I'm going to follow you, you must explain it to me. 
And, and he says, get down here, God. He uses courtroom language. He's like, you know, you come down here. I'm going to ask you some questions, and I'm going to put you on trial, God. You must tell me what, why you did this. And again, that, that idea that, that we could understand everything that God is doing. It's, it, so, so the sin of Job was that pride. It reminds me of that book uh, by C.S. Lewis. It's actually a collection of essays by C.S. Lewis called God in the Dock. I don't know if you've ever heard of God in the Dock. And, and when C.S. Lewis talks about the dock, he doesn't mean like a boat dock. But in uh, a British courtroom, in an English courtroom, the place where the defendant, where the accused sits, is called the dock. So it's the idea that we're putting God on trial. He's the accused, and, and modern society puts God in the dock and demands that God explain things to us and to our reason, as if our reason was omnipotent, which itself is a religious belief, because you can't prove that. Uh, that that's an assumed doctrine. So uh, Job wants to put God in the dock. All right, God, you come down here and explain this to me. Well, so that's going on in the book of Job. Then the book, finally, book of Job finally ends with this wonderful scene where God actually decides to come down. But it doesn't end up the way Job had anticipated. God is not in the dock. Job is in the dock. Put a bookmark here. Let me show you. You've got to see some of these little phrases. Amazing. Job uh, 38. It's the book right before Psalms. So you go right before Psalms, there's Job. Go to Job chapter 38, page 527. Look at Job chapter 38. Then the Lord answered Job from the dock, no, out of the storm. And he said, Who is this that darkens my counsel with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man. I will question you, and you shall answer me. And then God goes on to describe creation. And he's like, you know, verse 4, Were you there when I laid the earth's foundations? Tell me if you understand. Can you explain the, the reality of the universe? And he continues to pepper Job with these questions for two chapters, 38, 39. Whoa, finally, verse 40, chapter, sorry, chapter 40, verse 1. After he finishes this, this withering assault of questions that Job cannot answer. Then in chapter 40, verse 1, the Lord said to Job, Will the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? Let him who accuses God answer him. And Job answered the Lord, I'm unworthy. How can I reply to you? I put my hand over my mouth. I spoke once, but I have no answer. Twice, but I will say no more. Are we done now? No. Verse 6. Then the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm. Brace yourself like a man. I'll question you. You shall answer me. Would you discredit my justice? Would you condemn me to justify yourself? Like you've lost sight that you're the creation. I'm the creator. And yeah, there's questions and there's things to ask, but there's also a line that we have to recognize is beyond us. And then he gives them two more chapters of withering questions that Job cannot answer. Chapter 40, 41. And finally, chapter 42, verse 1. Job is done. And Job replied to the Lord, I know that you can do all things. No plan of yours can be thwarted. You're sovereign, as Pete was praying. You asked, who is this that counsels, uh, obscures my counsel without knowledge? Surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too 
wonderful for me to know. That's the same word from Psalm 131, verse 1. Too wonderful. There are certain things we can't understand, even when our best reason is applied. There's a, there's a line we cannot cross. You said, listen now, and I will speak. I will question you, and you shall answer me. Verse 5, my ears have heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I despise myself, and I repent in dust and ashes. He humbles himself. He comes back across that line, and he says, at the end of the day, you're God, and I'm the creation. And he humbles himself before God. I think that's what this psalm is talking about. Not that we can't ask questions or wrestle with theology. I mean, some of the greatest minds in the Western civilization have been Christian theologians, people like Augustine and um, people like Calvin, people like Edwards. I mean, amazing brains. But they all reach that point. If you know Augustine or Calvin or Edwards, they, they were very humbled before the sovereignty of God. And they, they had an awareness that God is God. And that's where the psalmist is at. That's the person of faith, the person who is not proud and haughty, but even in their questioning, even in their wrestling, they realize there's a line they cannot cross. Do you have faith in your heart? Are you a person of faith in God? And you say, well, how do I know? Well, that's one thing to look for. Is there pride? Is there, uh, is there yeah, I got this. You, you know, do you pretty much depend on yourself? You, you know, that, that's what we say here in New England, right? I'm all set. I'm all set. I got it. God, I'm all set. I got this. You know, I got it under control. If I get in a real crisis, I might shoot one up to you, but that's it. I'm okay. Don't need anything. Am I proud? Am I self-sufficient, self-reliant? And, and, or, or am I demanding? Have I, have I sort of thought that maybe God is the defendant and I'm the prosecuting attorney, judge, jury, and executioner? Or have I forgotten that at the end of the day, if there is a God, if that's true, if it's true there's a God, if that proposition is true, then it must also be true that I'm the creation, <laughs> And so we should expect that if the proposition is true for the sake of argument that there is a God, that I'm not, there's going to be a limit to even the greatest mind and what it can conceive of in trying to understand God. And so the, the problem is not so much asking questions as that attitude behind it. Is it a humble searching after truth or is it this kind of Jobish demanding, you better tell me or I'm not going <laughs> to... That doesn't fly. So that's not, what, that's not what faith is. What do you find in your own soul? I find a lot of self-sufficiency in mine. But then he tells us positively what, what faith looks like. So that's not what faith looks like. It's not arrogant and self-reliant and demanding. And, and it, it's not a, a, a mind that has the religion of rationalism. But instead, this is what it looks like, verse 2. He says, but instead, I've stilled and quieted my soul. So it's not that life's circumstances are still and quiet, but it's that my soul, in the midst of them, as I'm trusting in God, is still and quiet, that there's a kind of calm center to it all where I know that God is sovereign. There's a great calm and freedom that comes when you finally surrender to the sovereignty of God. 
The sovereignty of God is kind of a frustrating doctrine until you finally just surrender to it, and then it's the sweetest doctrine. (laughs) Because then you just say, he's sovereign, and I surrender, even if I can't understand it all, even if I don't know how all these things work together theologically, I surrender because he's God. And there's a stillness and a peace that comes because that's what faith is. It's humbly surrendering. It's what Job finally came to. And and Job's problems didn't go away before he surrendered. They went away after he surrendered. But before before they went away, Job finally said, I repent. You're God. I, I come back to my place of a trusting creation to the Creator. Or I think of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Outwardly, circumstantially, it was really bad. He was just hours away from imprisonment, torture, execution. Outwardly, his circumstances were incredibly turbulent. In fact, they were so turbulent that he prayed in the garden, if there's any way that this can go down without me drinking this cup, Father, take it away. But, but what? Not my will, but yours be done. That's the prayer of the stilled and quieted soul. Lord, your will be done. I have faith. Obviously, I don't want to go down that path, but if that's where you're calling me, your will be done. And there's a stillness and a quiet and a peace. And, and as you read the rest of that story, as Jesus goes to the cross, he is the, the epitome of a man who is centered and stilled, and he's confident as he goes through his incredible sufferings for our sins. And it comes from being stilled and quieted before the Lord. That, that idea of being still and quiet is such a powerful idea that the psalmist elaborates on it the rest of verse 2. He says, like a weaned child with its mother. And then he repeats it. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. So he wants us to think on that. It's kind of like last Sunday when it was in verse 6 of, chapter, of Psalm 130. More than a watchman waits for the morning. More than the watchman wait for the morning. And now he repeats it again. Like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. And so that image of a weaned child is an image of stillness and rest. So, so let's just think about that image. A weaned child. You know, so what, what does that mean? Okay, well think about this. What is a child like before it's weaned while it's still nursing? You know, you, you take a child who's awake, who's nursing, and you put it into the bosom of its mother. <laughs> what is that child like? They go bananas, you know? It's like me at dinner time. I'm like, that's for dinner. <laughs> the baby's like looking to latch on to something, and it's so hungry, and it's spazzy. What, what's a child like during that, that period where it's being weaned? It's not always a happy baby. I don't get it anymore. Like, oh, mom, why are you holding out on me? There's the inner monologue of the baby. I was was talking about this passage with Pastor Seth, and he was telling me from his farm experience of weaning uh, uh, colts from from mother horses. I don't know if that's the right term. I don't know. Um, Horses scare me. They're bigger than me. I don't know. But, um, But I guess what you do is you just take the baby horse and you separate it from the mama horse and, and he said during that period, they're both super agitated. They're both super unhappy. They, they don't like it. It's, it's a tumultuous time. It's a time of deprivation. It's a time of transition. But once the child is weaned, 
and then it goes into the bosom of its mother. It's at peace. Because now it's not going to the mother for what the mother can give it to eat. But the child is going to the mother simply because of who the mother is. For the peace, the protection, the love, the embrace of the mother. The wind child is there when there's a thunderstorm outside and thunder and lightning and the kids panicking and they're crying and they, they're there with the mother. And even though it's booming outside, as they, they still themselves on the mother's arm and shoulder and the eyes are wide, but there's no more tears because it's safe with the mother. Or in the middle of the night when there's a nightmare and the kid comes tearing into the parent's bedroom. I had a bad nightmare and there was this big monster and, you know, and the parents are like, just come here, just come here. You know, and they're barely awake. And the kid burrows down in between mom and dad and, you know, steals the pillows. and You know, but, but the child is so safe there. It's with the parents, with mom or with dad. And, and even though the child may remember scary images from the nightmare, there's a sense of still and quiet in the presence of these parents. Or when the child is really sick and, you know how kids are when they're sick. They're so gross. They like throw up and they're all sweaty. They're, all, they're always sweaty and their hair's like, you know, and they're just, it's gross. But, it, but mom will hold them. And mom will hold them, and mom will comfort them. And even though they feel miserable and they have a fever, they're still and quiet when they're in the arms of their mother. That's what a weaned child is like with its mother. And this is how God invites us to come. To still and quiet ourselves in his presence because he loves us. You know, a lot of us here are Christians. We claim to have faith in Jesus. But you look at our our souls and the state of our souls, and for a lot of us, there is a lot of screaming, crying, yelling, fidgety, tearing around, anxiety, stress. We we, we don't live like people who are stilled and quieted. You know, we're we're like Martha in the kitchen. She's banging away. (laughs) There's Mary just at the feet of Jesus fellowshipping with the Lord. Because he, and he says, Martha, chill. She's chosen the right thing. Be still. Know the Lord and fellowship with the Lord. Be still and quieted. I, I wonder sometimes if, if God just watches us running around, and he's like the parent sitting in the chair, just shaking his head, laughing at us, and we're like, ah, the money, and ah, what about this, and I don't know. And you know, we're like all over the place. And God is just the, the father just going like, I'm here. Come on. Okay, you got, you got more running around today. I go run around. I'll be here. Waiting for his children to quiet themselves in his loving, fatherly arms. To be people of faith who no matter how bad or how good things are outwardly, there's always a place of still and quiet in our souls because we know he loves us. That's what comes when you surrender to his will and trust him. Maybe that's a a tough image for you because you didn't really have a mom like that. Maybe you didn't have a dad like that. Maybe you didn't have a mom or dad like that. 
maybe when you think of your own parents, you don't necessarily think of warmth and safety and embrace and kindness. You didn't have a parent like that. But this psalm tells us that there is a God like that. And he embraces those who put their faith in him. And this God can be your God. This God is adopting new children. He is still in the adoption process. What does it take to be adopted by God? Faith. You have to, verse 1, no longer be proud. We call this repentance. You have to come to the Lord and say, God, I I confess my pride. I confess my demandingness. I confess my self-worship and and the way I've held myself above you. I I repent of that. And Lord, I still and quiet my soul and I trust in Christ alone. Not what I can do, but like a little child trusting in Christ who can save me. Not me saving myself because I've already confessed that I can't do that. You know, saving yourself and making yourself right with God is something too wonderful for you. You can't, nor can I. But Jesus has done it. And so we still and quiet ourselves in faith by trusting in the work of Christ, not our own work. Like a helpless child, throwing ourselves at the mercy of God, that's what saving faith looks like, and that's what faith continues to look like in the Christian life. And then the psalmist speaks to us, having described his own soul, he says to us in verse 3, Oh, Israel, put your hope in the Lord, both now and forevermore. South Shore Baptist Church, put your hope in the Lord, both now and forevermore. We need to get a bullhorn and go stand on the roof of the church and just start screaming, South Shore of Boston! Put your hope in the Lord, both now and forevermore. Is your hope in the Lord this morning? Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your great patience with us. We thank you for your your fatherly tenderness with us. Lord, we we are thrashing, agitated children, we confess. And we're proud and we're arrogant and demanding. We're kind of spoiled brats sometimes. But Lord, we humble ourselves before you this morning and we confess that we don't have what it takes. We, We say those words of that hymn, we need thee, oh, we need thee. Lord, we confess our our humble dependence upon you for our salvation and for every grace we need to keep going day after day in the Christian life, which is not easy. But Lord, we depend upon you. And Lord, we, we still and quiet our hearts this morning before you. Lord, I thank you that you're a God who is inviting us into fellowship with you, who's inviting us to know you, to rest in you, And God, I pray that you would help us to take a deep breath, to stop the the arrogance of our busyness and take time to rest in you and to depend upon you. God, I pray for every busy, harried, uh, freaking out person here, including myself, that Lord, we would 
put our faith in you. Oh God, teach us the art of being stilled and quieted in the midst of all circumstances. Give us the peace that passes understanding when we really trust you. Oh God, increase our faith. And Lord, I pray here for anyone who's never really had faith in you, that they would see that they are people of faith. They just have faith in themselves. What a disaster that is. Oh Lord, thank you that your arms are open to repentant sinners like us. Thank you that you're still adopting children into your family. Oh God, wean us from the world and give us a taste for your heart and your presence. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.